everyone. I'm Ekta Kapoor. Welcome to Ishi TV. Today, I'm speaking to one of the most highly regarded and well-respected tech executives in Silicon Valley. Welcome, Sukhinder Singh Cassidy. Thank you so much for having me. So for our viewers, Sukhinder has 25 years of experience as a technology CEO, entrepreneur, board member, and investor. She has helped uh, scale global companies, including Google, Amazon, and StubHub and has advised several others, including TripAdvisor, Ericsson, and J.Crew. She's also built several companies of her own, including Yodley and The Board List. Born in Africa and raised in Canada, Sukhinder currently lives with her husband and three children in the San Francisco Bay Area. She's just come out with this book, Choose Possibility, How to Master Risk and Thrive. And we're going to talk to her about this book, her experiences in Silicon Valley, and a whole lot more. So welcome to Ishi TV, Sukinder. So happy to have you here. And uh, I've been going through your book. Congratulations on the launch of your first book. Thank you. And uh, I, I'd like to read out this portion that I'd marked because it it just kind of resonated with my own experience uh, of life and you know professions and careers. Um, so I'm just going to read out this part. Sure. Successful risk-taking is a process of choosing possibility, a series of steps whose logic and direction only become clear when viewed in retrospect. And I think that's so true. You know, there are certain mm -hmm. things you only realize when you look back. Take a risk, and you might get a reward right away. But you will much more likely simply get another opportunity to take a risk, and another, and another, only eventually getting where you want to go. And I think this is absolutely the gist of this book. And it's really struck a chord with me because uh, this has been my experience as well, that the risks, uh, you know, they go, they start from small and, and they go bigger. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, from your own experience, do you think that, you know, we're talking about risks and it's a, being a continuous process. Um, do you think somebody's age or their gender or their socioeconomic background has any role to play in, in their personal risk-taking appetite, you know, or their capability? Well, it's a, I think it's a great question because, in fact, one of the myths I think that many people have is that in order to be, you know, able to take risks, you must be a risk taker. So even before, you know, those factors, people often think that you're naturally born to take a risk. Does that make sense? Um, and in fact, as you noted, one of the myths I wanted to spell in the book is if you look at many of the, you know, world successful people, they're introverted, they're extroverted. In fact, it's almost impossible for researchers to define any single characteristic. But it's this process, right, of continually choosing that ultimately leads to reward. So the first myth to be debunked is that it's genetic. Now, to your point, are there other factors that contribute to your risk taking ability? I will say I wanted it to be untrue that, for example, gender contributed to your risk-taking ability. And again, we're not talking about nature here. We're just talking about, you know, factors and, and ways you've grown up that are different. And in fact, um, on a demographic basis, there are women are less likely to take risks than men on 14 of 16 dimensions. And this was a study done of 150 different gender studies that categorize risk-taking. So we know that there are differences uh, in gender. And you may say, well, what causes those? Um, Number one, the thing that the research is that these gender differences are caused by a perception. In fact, it's true that when women are perceived to be less uh, risk taking, they fulfill that expectation or behavior. So, as you know, when there's a negative bias, you may act in favor of that ne negative bias because you don't think that 
the environment expects you to take risks. So that's a factor. Number two, um, one of the uh, important points about demo uh, demographics is actually these uh, gender gaps decrease on many dimensions with age and experience. So to answer your question, does age play a role? It does, and I'll come to what the research says about men in a moment. But with regard to women, it can decrease with age. There is a difference. Um, part of it is driven by societal expectation. And the research also suggests that we have to define risk-taking more broadly. To your point, it could be an innocuous risk. It could be a physical risk. It could be a financial risk. There's many good risks, right? The book talks a lot about taking good risks. Um, and the research suggests that people will take risks in two contexts, contexts that they find valuable, i.e., you ask me to take a risk in something that I find important. And number two, in contexts in which they think they'll be successful, which comes back to this negative bias. <laughs> if you think you're unlikely to be successful at doing something, you may not take a risk. And so these are the factors that influence, you know, why women may take risk less. Um, the other thing I did besides looking at gender-based research is we have a survey on the site. You're welcome to take it. It's uh, on my book website, choosepossibility.com. We have what's called a risk quiz. Just understand what's your current inclination. Um, and we offer that quiz, not to a sample of an international population, but a sample of the US population. And in fact, we also found that there are across women and men, um, across both populations, differences between people who are wealthier and less wealthy. Now you would say, well, that's obvious. If you are more successful and older, you're more likely to take more risk. But in fact, in the highest dem demographic um, classes that took the, the risk quiz, they were um, on extremes. They were either more likely to change often, be what we call a change seeker, but they're also more likely to be critical and paranoid um, and less likely to see the upside in risk. So there it's quite dichotomous. And this would suggest one of the things I posit in my book is that when we get older and more successful, it's not that we feel risk, less risk, like uh, less scared of risk taking. It's just that our fears change. It may go from financial risk when we have some financial security to ego risk. I don't know about you, but I've certainly faced a lot of ego risk, you know, when I've gotten older and I'm like, now I have more to lose. Yeah. Uh, so these were some of the findings uh, around, uh, around differences. So, so there is, uh, you know, there, there are differences in, based on where people come from. Now, you've also mm -hmm. talked in the book about, uh, you know, to an extent, we've started accepting that large technology companies, they, they start with their beta versions and then sometimes they go into new, uh, you know, business avenues altogether. We've kind of come to accept that uh, with technology com companies coming in. But, you know, this kind of level of acceptance of risk-taking behavior is still kind of missing uh, when it comes to the personal, uh, to the level. I mean, people are still afraid of taking risks and we kind of associate risk-taking with being unwise or not thinking mm -hmm. things through. So, mm -hmm. so why do you think that happens? Well, first of all, I think it's, uh, as you pointed out, particularly for tech companies, India, Canada, what have you, this notion of iteration is celebrated and even pivots, right? I was X, I became Y in order to find success. I, you know, and you know, those pivots can be minute, a percentage at a time of a change in a product that amounts to a lot or big, right? Like I went from being company X to company Y. But I think that there's one thing missing, missing when you evaluate why that we don't treat our careers the same way, which is called our egos, like our sense of self and our sense of wanting others to think well of us leads to like, you know, as we talked about ego risk, our own sense of like, well, if we say something and we don't complete it, what does it say to us about who we are? And number two, what will others think of us? So I think we could kind of talk about many, many things that are the difference between companies and people. 
but I actually think it's this, right? It's like, it's the human factor. You know, it, we don't treat ourselves like a objective piece of paper or an objective company. When it comes to us, we are wrapped up in ourselves. And so that gives birth to fear of failure, you know, ego risk, because again, our sense of self-identity is caught up in this. When there's a company like whose identity are we talking about, right? The founders maybe, but, um, but the founders identity is also wrapped up in needing to pivot to make sure that that company is successful. So they'll do almost anything. But when it comes to us personally, I really think that it all sounds good on paper. People say, take risk, have a growth mindset, but wrapped up in that is our self-identity and obviously our sense of what others would think of us, which matters to us. And in many cases, like founders are no longer even associated with the company. So yes, exactly. You know, there's a certain detachment that can come in and, uh, among the, the executives on taking big mm-hmm. chances. So, yeah, that's true. When we have our own uh, personal identity and ego mixed up with the decision, I think it's a lot, there's a lot more emotional investment uh, required to take that kind of a risk. Um, yes, yeah. And, and, you know, in the book, you've shared your sister's experience, Nikki's experience of mm-hmm. how she took a risk of shutting down her she had a, a, an optometrist practice in a mall, uh, and mm-hmm. then, but then she found a better opportunity uh, just by chance. So I like mm-hmm. this idea of chance. And, and have you noticed that uh, this chance or this luck happening a lot more uh, when you do take risks? And, and you know, can you share something from your own life? Sure. Well, first of all, I think you're referring to a phenomena which I do agree happens, which is called prepared to be lucky. You don't know when luck happens, but you know, people are always like, you have to put yourself in opportunities path, right? For serendipity to show up. So first of all, risk is like anything else. And this is why I say it's a continuous process. Like the more at-bats you take, not only do the more adept you become, but the more chances you actually physically create for something to manifest, right? If you never take a risk, there's no chance for serendipity to intercede. And if you, and if you keep taking sort of, let's say making new choices, you have more exposure and more opportunity. So um, I think, uh, I, I think, yes. Um, I think that I think that for serendipity or luck to even have a chance of finding you, you have to put yourself out there to be found. Now, you and I both know that in the book, I also talk that many times what we call serendipity and luck is timing. <laughs> many times what we call serendipity and luck is what I love tailwinds. You know, people often there are saying, well, you had this great, great career. And I, and I pause it back to them. Okay, I took a risk to move to Silicon Valley in 1997. And by the way, okay, I, I put myself here. Did I have any sense? for where the US would be in terms of, you know, and the world in terms of internet adoption. Did I know that, you know, in the ensuing five years, the curve would go from this to this? I didn't, but to point, I got lucky. But is that luck? Is that timing? Is that tailwinds? I didn't, I, you know, I didn't perceive, I perceived it was a good move. I didn't perceive it was a great move um, because I was just thinking about myself and taking another chance. So I think that sometimes luck comes in tailwinds, sometimes luck comes in meeting someone, sometimes luck comes in timing, you know, the consumer's not ready to adopt and you keep trying and they are. And I've seen all those types of luck show up. But to your point, if you are not actively making choices and seeking out, you know, uh, new environments, it won't find you. I mean, by the way, I would, uh, this is the most ironic thing of everything. If you take a risk once, if you make a choice once, you are now truly call uh, counting on the luckiest of luck like you're like hey lightning please strike me <laughs> and again. i think that this is the, if, you, yes, if you do it again yeah. yeah but that's my point the chances of lightning strike you striking you in a positive way will only happen if you go out like 
a hundred times in a storm. If you walk out once in a storm, you're like, hey, lightning, please strike me right now. Like this one time, that, that's what I call like, okay, that's like sheer luck, but that's also foolishness. If you want it, like if you really want to get struck by lightning, keep going out in the storm. Again, in the positive sense, um, because you have to give yourself chances for serendipity to show up. Not count and, on it. And you, you also talked about your intuition getting better with, yes. with more risks that you took. You know, you, you've mentioned this point as well, uh, that yeah, you, you kind of become better at sensing uh, yeah. what's a good risk versus what's a bad risk. Bad risk. And, and, you know, you and I would call that pattern recognition. Again, we like yeah. to call it gut. We're like, oh, that person's listening to their gut. And I'm like, well, look, do the analysis. And when your gut is speaking, it's simply telling you that there's some signal you've seen before that is making you wary again. And obviously this is why as we get older, we have more of a gut, right? Um, it's just another form of data, but we feel like we don't recognize it. We don't process it as what it is, which is sometimes pattern recognition very subconsciously. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's, it's like, it takes practice. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so you've written about this myth of the single choice. So mm -hmm. how has uh, this understanding uh, changed things for you at a personal level? Well, I think that the myth of the single choice is, the, is this idea that, just for people who don't, um, haven't heard the phrase because I coined it, um, is this idea that we are burdened with trying to be perfect because we think that we must make one mighty choice because from the outside in, right? Everything we celebrate about people's success, it's like celebrating big risk. Jeff Bezos is going to space. Elon Musk is going to space. You know, this person, you, you pull out the one story in the media that tells of this enormous risk somebody took out that worked out. But of course, this all we're doing is abstracting an entire journey to this one story. And the problem then is, you know, what this is what people remember, even our own memories do this to ourselves, that there's a single choice that a person made that led to success. And it's never that, but that's what we, that's what we um, identify with. So that's what we think of the myth of single choice. Look, I faced that myth many times myself. And I think if I think about it personally, when I first graduated college, um, in, a, in a bad way, I was singularly focused on one goal. I was like, I must be an investment banker. I must, I must. And I didn't even know why I had that goal. It was sort of copying, you know, what I saw in my environment from my friends without really having a goal of my own. So I subscribed to that myth. Um, and I think it created a lot of pressure, um, a lot of um, looking at myself and understanding and trying and struggling why I didn't fit when I couldn't get a job. Why was I not getting the thing that, um, I really wanted and what did it suggest about me? So I think when we have this myth of the single choice, it really boxes in our thinking um, about like being perfect, you know, uh, trying once and giving up. Now, luckily in that case, you know, I needed a job. <laughs> so I, you know, I had no, I had no option but to try multiple times. And quite frankly, it was only in the trying multiple times that I debunked that own myth in my head. But I certainly started with it like everyone does. And I think uh, in that case, I had to get a job. So I had no choice but to keep acting. The real risk in the myth of single choice is we never act. We think, oh, it has to be a mighty choice. And then that choice is so much pressure. And then we're like, well, I'll just decide tomorrow. And we keep putting off the choice because we think it has to be a perfect choice or no choice at all. And obviously, as you and I know, like that's, that's probably the biggest risk is not acting at all. And in fact, you're talking about this job. You, you tried many times to get a job. If I remember that anecdote, uh, and there was this job where you went multiple times to try and get it, and it didn't mm -hmm. happen. Um, and it didn't but, happen. But it kind of, uh, you know, made you stronger, and uh, it made you more determined, more confident. 
for the mm-hmm. next few interviews and then you finally did land a good job so well of course this is that this is the thing you know everyone's like oh you know failure is so good for you right and and again that truism exists but it's like why is it so good for you and i think in in hindsight we can all say that once you've made many 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 choices and finally one works out there's both more more joy in the victory but of course at the end agility resilience confidence and this comes out of a lot of failure far more than it comes out of a single success um, and i've also found that to be true you know i think when my career was only you know other people would look back and call a history of successes um, ironically i was sometimes at my most insecure to all of those points i was worried that i would you know what would happen if i failed and then you know and the book talks about it i had multiple failures in a row and i consider myself a much more confident leader post those failures because you know as you keep making your way through choices ultimately one works ultimately <laughs> and when it does you know you look back and you think about the agility you built and your confidence to make the next risk goes goes up tremendously actually yeah and actually when we're talking about um failure you know um it, it also kind of makes you uh, fearless in a sense and it it becomes like a stepping stone uh, for later success but you know even then don't you think society stigmatizes failure so much uh, that people are become people become afraid to take risks so, yes. so, so you know what is a message you'd especially like to give women about this yeah i think well i think a couple things first of all we ourselves stigmatize failure still and other people stigmatize it. and again i know i mean i have well you know i have walked in those shoes and it's don't get me wrong anytime i take a risk do i want to succeed of course <laughs> like i'm like anyone else in that regard um but i think that uh i think that there are a couple of things that are important to recognize about fail about failure number one people are like well failure is learning that's absolutely true if you're in any feedback loop any feedback loop whatsoever we can all objectively agree that the experts in anything in anything are doing you know are doing that practice again and again and again and and by virtue of sort of the definition of growing they have to try new things in order to master them so your failure rate on new things is really high it's like if you're a top nba player the first time you try and shoot a three pointer or whatever you know your your percentage rate might be 10% and then you know at best you may end up being a 50% shooter from the three point line and by the way that might be a phenomenal percentage it might be an elite percentage um but it's still 50% so this is why you know we have to accept that if you want to become excellent at anything we we know that failure is part of the game i think for women i think that there is um i think there's another thing going on and 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 part of it is actually true so this is what makes it more challenging bias and discrimination does exist i live in a place where when women fail you know they get sort of hung in the media far more than male ceos i mean you and i both could point to female ceos getting poked at by the way they get given more challenging tasks as ceos like there's history to suggest that in turnarounds women get those job opportunities and you know more often So first of all, I think women are put in sometimes as leaders more more failing situations. Number 2, there is a stigma that is put upon already a you know bias system when we fail, like you know, a like get shot upon it more. So there's actually some very true reason for women to fear failure more. Does that make sense in a system of possibility and discrimination uh, of bias and discrimination? Having said all that, and this is what I point to often being an entrepreneur still being an entrepreneur being a leader still a leader what it takes to grow whether no matter if you're in a system of bias or a system of perfection a system of like you know no bias 
the reality is in order to succeed, in an order to grow, you have to take more risks. So I think with women, you know, my advice is uh, you have to accept that you do live in systems of bias and discrimination. Um, that doesn't give you a pass on needing to stretch and grow yourself because unfortunately you are competing every day you know, with, you know, other people who are pivoting and making those choices. So uh, it is true. So I always say to people, like, you can recognize that a system is imperfect, but you still need to choose possibility. Um, and I think, uh, I think for women, maybe the risk uh, is a little greater. That's true. It's also true that uh, if you walk into that situation with a chip upon your shoulder, shoulder, and you start acting in ways that are in concert with the bias and discrimination, you are now putting yourself in a negative cycle, right? So so I guess I'm giving you a very nuanced answer. It's very easy to say, oh, women, just take more risk. There's no, you know, there's no risk. And I'm like, yeah, there is more risk for women in taking risk, um, you know, or be given risky situations, inherently risky situations to manage. Um, but the reality is the path to possibility is the path to possibility. And so uh, try not to let that be the reason, you know, you don't try because of what other people put upon you in terms of their expectations. One last note, and I think this is a real positive, particularly for women leaders. Um, you and I both know the research says for people to want to take risks at work, right? To have, you know, they need to feel safe and included, right? Now, if you think about which type of leaders create inclusive environments in which other people feel free to take risk, I would say the research would suggest that women are more empathetic. They build more diverse teams. So the irony of all ironies if, if, is if you asked me to build a company and said, who would create an environment in which others can take risk more? I would point to the women leaders. I'd be like, they're much likely to, more likely to create an environment in which everybody feels safe to take risk. So there's this shining light, which is women and leaders probably create better environments for others to take risks. But I think our challenge to ourselves is look, let us model imperfection as well in pursuit yeah. of faster progress. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, we were talking um, before the session, we were talking about, uh, you know, your parents uh, being from the Sikh background, being from India, mm -hmm. uh, and you, you know, you were born in, uh, in, in Africa later, but then you did go to India. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, let's, let's touch a little bit about women in developing countries, especially mm -hmm. India and South Asia, where, uh, as you know, I mean, uh, the, the level of choices are not, not that much, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, they won't have a choice of when they get married. They don't have a choice of education. They don't have a choice of husband. They don't. They don't have a choice when they have a child, uh, or even what to eat on a day-to-day -day basis. You know. So uh, when when we're in such situations, when we're talking about, uh, you know, where taking a, a big decision, taking a risk, or choosing possibility comes with so much, such big risks. Like it's a life and death situation sometimes. Their families, uh, you know, reputations and lives are at stake. Uh, so you know, the the risk is so much more. It's so much huger. Um, so then what kind of, what, what would you advise in these situations? Well, first of all, I think the most important thing is uh, many people think that risk taking is about, as we said earlier, a big choice or no choice. In the book, you know, a lot of the thesis is about micro risks. You know, like what is the incremental choice you can make, you know, that both gives you energy and learning. So I, you know, we all agree that people in life have many different circumstances, right? And for some people, like, and many people, like, by the way, many people, even in the United States, you can't simply say, like, quit your job, you know, leave your husband, you know, like, uh, uh, even here, I mean, we're all constrained. What I would say is if you are, if you are facing a situation where you don't have a lot of choices, 
what I say to people is like, what is the minimum viable choice? What is the smallest increment of a choice you can make to give yourself progress? And by the way, to your point, if that is, you know, I'm in a job that uh, I'm not happy in, but I need to make an income. I have a family to support. I have a, you know, I'm in a developing country. If you're in a developing country, it may be, as, you know, you know this too. The risk may be, you know, saying, I want to go to school. <laughs> the risk may be, you know, hey, I am going to, while I'm at this job, I'm going to go work in a women's community and try and create some incremental self-sufficiency by, you know, you know, this maybe, uh, you know, making goods at home. These are the incrementalist of choices that give us, the most important thing is any increment of choice that gives you energy, that gives you learning, that's risk-taking too. And I think when we define risk-taking as it has to be mighty to your point, that is a very inaccessible kind of risk-taking. So I always say to people like, you don't need to make the maximum viable choice. What's the minimum viable choice you can make that gives you some progress? And you know, Entire companies have been built by moving one degree at a time, you know, yeah. over a long time to create something amazing. And I think if you feel like your choice set is limited, it may be a world of like move one degree at a time. It's totally okay. You can still transform and reinvent, you know, your sense of happiness and life and fulfillment. Um, so I would just say you just make the minimum increment choice in whatever time frame you could make it. Um, but know that it's possible, right? Know that even the tiniest choice, if done in sequentially and in series, can really change your outcome. Um, and I think, I, I think you have to give freedom to make the people to make the smallest of choices as opposed to imprinting upon them that you must make a big choice. Because um, to your point, that is very risky. Yeah, that, that's very beautiful actually to just focus on that 1% and just, you know, yeah. just take that minimum 1%, choice. 1%. Don't keep that big goal in front of you, but keep that smallest yeah. of the goals, just you know? The smallest increment. And, and then again, that's like, like, that's just choosing possibility continuously. And to anybody who I think is in a constrained situation, it's like, okay, think about the 1% and just repeating it. Um, yeah. 1%, 1%, 1% a year, 1% in a day. It, like, I think it's the mantra of sort of repeating that 1% that, that can create change over a long period of time. Right. And give you more choice, you know, over a long period of time, even if you don't have it today. Yeah. Uh, you've talked about your, doc uh, your father, who was a doctor and had a medical practice. Uh, and he set up the first... Uh, walk-in clinic uh, at the time and you said that he was equal parts pragmatic and ambitious and I really caught on that phrase because uh, do, do you think that this this is the combination that is the secret to developing a healthy sort of risk-taking appetite you know as opposed to the negative yes. one which we take out of fear or you know compulsion well I think it ties to this last conversation we had like uh, let's just walk all of that back, right? My father and mother, both of them grew, uh, grew up in large families without a lot of wealth, right? You and I both know that um, one would call becoming a doctor, becoming an engineer, becoming a lawyer. These are the types of professions are, you know, their parents would inspire upon them to decrease the risk in their lives and increase the choice, right? So of course it makes a lot of sense that you would say, I'm going to pick this profession because it can give me financial security and safety from having none. So nobody would say being a doctor is a big risk. You would say, in fact, I took that job to reduce risk, right? But why would I call my father a risk taker? This is sort of the point, I think, and it, it links very well to the previous point. It's because every day he woke up and he might make a 1% move or he might think, think about a 100% move. And every day I just saw that practice. So to your point, it was the combination, right? Like, I mean, some of his possibility moves were very pragmatic. I mean, who says that taking a risk is not, is not to be pragmatic? You know, it be, might be like, 
saving his money, okay, risk aversion. Spending it in the stock market, like, you know, risk taking. By the way, spending only 10% of it in the stock market, you know, being pragmatic about how much risk he's gonna take. I mean, these are all just risk calculations, right? But the point is every incremental choice was towards progress and possibility. And so, yes, that views, that's my view on risk taking too. If anybody's like risk taking is just large risk, large risk, large risk, I'm like, by the way, I just don't think it's true. I think even many of the world's best risk takers are smart risk takers. Small, 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 a larger choice, small, 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 medium choice. And by the way, some small choices unlock big rewards, some big risks, fail to materialize any big reward. Some big risks do lead to big failures. I mean, it's any combination. It's like a combination lock. Do you need one degree? Do you need 50 degrees? I don't know, but it's a combination of moves, right? It's continuing to choose. So yes, as you can tell, my worldview is pragmatism, even in your risk-taking moves. Yeah. And it's a combination, some small, some big, but with frequency. And I think that's the example I saw from my father. Yeah, some moves were big, some moves were minute. But always, always just like curious, learning, wanting to make an impact. Yeah. Um, and that's what I, I obviously completely admire about, about him. Yeah, pragmatic and ambitious. So yes. I, I, I like that. <laughs> yeah. Don't give up either. <laughs> so, okay, so one last question. I mean, we've talked about how, uh, you know, your career from the outside, it looks like it's, it's just been one linear kind of a growth. But in truth, it's more of, taking risks, going up and down and a lot of curves and you know a lot of um, chances that you've taken. Now, having been through all this, looking back, what is your definition of success and what is the relation of success and happiness now, according to yeah. you? Well, first of all, um, I think my definition of success has changed for sure. Some parts of it are valid. I pursue, as I said, financial success or a title or, you know, what have you. But what I've learned in my career, and we talked about this, is because I've had failure and success alike as defined by these external metrics, the thing that has given me satisfaction and always precedes success, it also precedes failure, by the way, but it precedes success always, 100% of the time, is impact, right? Because you try many things. And as we said, like the journey between risk and reward is pretty nonlinear. So you're, you know, trying many things to make impact produce results and outcomes. And when I look back on my career and why I'm even able to talk about failures as a success, I realize it's because I have a sense of satisfaction that I was able to produce some positive impacts and outcomes, even if I didn't get everything, right? So today for me, success means something different. It means that you are on a journey where you're creating impact. And if you can create impact, you can have success. And by the way, at some point, those impacts will add up and you will have what people call external success. You'll have a career that people admire or you know, a title or more responsibility or more money. That isn't, you know, that cumulatively happens. But I think that now I look at like, can I have an impact? And my most frustrating situations in my career have been when I failed, but I've had no impact. I.e., I can't point to it and said, you know, like in my pursuit, I didn't even create an outcome you know, that was interesting. And I've had a couple of times where, you know, I left after six months, I didn't create any outcome. I mean, um, so for me, impact, you know, is now my definition of success, because I know the other things will follow anyway. Um, and then I think the other important piece of that is like, once you know, you can create impact, you feel a lot of agency. And so when people say to me, like, you know, I, there's another word people associate with success, which is power. And I'm like, I feel pretty powerful, even when I fail. 
but it's only because I feel like I have agency. I have the agency to anticipate, the agency to respond. And to your point, because I failed enough, I have some confidence that even when I fail, if I keep choosing, there will be some recovery. And so I feel, I can feel powerful even when I fail, but it's only because I'm through this cycle where I'm like, okay, if I can create an impact, if I can create an outcome, just pursue outcomes, pursue outcomes, pursue, pursue, pursue impact. You know, and I have seen now, I've lived through the cycle as you talked about like this, enough to have some confidence that I can keep practicing possibility and something will ultimately materialize. So those are kind of how I define these things today. It's so interesting you said that because just a few days ago I was talking to somebody who was talking about the kind of women that uh, we featured in, in Ishi. And what I told her is I'm not looking for somebody with achievements. I'm looking for somebody who's created impact. Uh, and that's uh, exactly what you just said. <laughs> so, so yeah. So, thank you for creating impact, and uh, you know, for the work that you do. And I think it's really important, uh, especially in the tech industry, to have role models for women, especially. And when one succeeds, you know, she lays the seeds for so many more. Uh, and I think uh, seeing you, uh, a lot of women, women in India as well, would be uh, inspired because you you have. Uh, some Indian roots, uh, some Indian genes, and hundred uh, percent Indian roots. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, so so when's the last time you visited India? Oh my goodness, it has been um, many years. As I was noting, I used to go very often, obviously, when I was running the region for Google. Um, and then my ambition was to take my son. My daughter went with me uh, many times, but I have a young son. And so I think we were going to go in 15 or 16, and then we chose Africa instead because I had never been back to Africa. And now we'll be post-COVID before we go back. But my son, the good news is my son is big enough now to meet his cousins and his family and appreciate it. You know, taking him when he was two or three, my feeling was he would not be able to appreciate all of that. So Africa, we, we did pre-COVID and India is definitely next on our list. What's your favorite place in India? Uh, well, look, I actually, um, my family is spread all over, but at, uh, as a city, I really like Chandigarh. It's like oh. it's cute, clean, it's beautiful, it's well-organized, it's green. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously there are many different cities, like for shopping, I, you know, I have different <laughs> cities I would choose, but I would say like, just as a, like a, a beautiful city, you know what I mean? I, I, I've always liked Chandigarh. Welcome to Delhi sometime, you know? Where, um, yeah, Delhi too, but like yeah. I said. Jelly for shopping. Shopping. Yeah, that's for shopping. I know. I mean, that's the problem true. is I think shopping, but um, but as I said, it's uh, uh, my desire to take it back. And to be fair, I haven't traveled a lot of India outside of Punjab. So I think when we come, though, you know, as I said, I want to come as a big family trip um, yeah. where I can bring my oldest and my youngest and my middle who's been there with me. Well, let's keep fingers crossed that, you know, the post-COVID world will have some semblance of the pre-COVID world. And we will be traveling in, in large numbers again. So, yes, I hope so. Yes. Thank you, Sukinder. Thank you so much for your time. And I wish you all Thank the best you. for your book. All Thank the you best. So much. Yes. Take Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for watching. Visit us on ishi.in and like and follow us on Ishi World.